have a matchmaker. Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles, which we think deserve more acclaim, and to which attention must be paid. I'm Matt, and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. And I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. So here's how this works. Two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, and sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it. But this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, I have two new albums to talk through, and Tim will make the choice for the subtitles albums list. Then, in part two, Tim will have two new movies to discuss, and I will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movies list. Sometimes I will have seen the movies, and sometimes Tim will have listened to the albums. But at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. And once we finish this off, we'll do some fun activities with the new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is Illmatic, Nas's 1994 debut and absolute stone-cold classic of an album. You know, we say in the intro, sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of the album on the list and... Few do I regret more than Illmatic having to go away. Um, like Equemini, I think it's way too low. I don't. Tim, do you have any thoughts on that? It's it's scary how low this is. Like to me, I feel like I hate to I hate to like tell other people their business, but like it's a little shocking to me that this is not a top ten album. It's not even top twenty. Like this is just. I, I don't know. If you had, if I'd known this list existed in 2015, which I didn't at the time, if you had just said Spin is picking their top 300 from the last, if you had told me Spin was picking their top 10 from the last 30 years, Illmatic would have been automatic for me on that. Like, there's no way I would have second guessed that as a, as a choice. So to see it at, at 23 uh, is. I think it's jarring to me anyway. I don't know if this is, if like Illmatic is getting a bad, like, critical reassessment as we go on, or not bad, but just like it feels slightly less impactful somehow, which I think is wrong. Um, but it's also worth mentioning that Biggie hasn't showed up on this list yet either. So I don't spin is kind of up to something weird with the New York rappers, I think. And I don't know what it is, but anyway, Illmatic far too low should not be 23rd. Um, but let's, let's move on. Um, we've, we've talked about Nas in one episode in an episode that I think in a weird way is kind of 
I don't know. I think you could see it either as a preface or as like an epilogue to this episode. Like I think the two connect uh, in a not weird way, but in a I don't know, kind of fun way, I guess. Um, that would have been episode thirteen when Jay Z's "The Blueprint" was the album. Um, we talked about what it means to grow old in hip hop, and today we're going to talk about. Uh, East Coast rap, kind of East Coast streets, I think I've titled it. And what that means, it could go so many different directions, but what it means here is we're going to be looking at albums from 1994 to 96. So a nice 94, 95, 96 progression. That moment in East Coast hip hop at the height of the East Coast, West Coast divide and kind of spanning. Uh, right up to before Biggie's death, I think, um, and kind of track progressions in, or, and see what's happening in East Coast hip-hop at that time, too. And it's worth mentioning that Wu-Tang Clan, um, Enter the Wu-Tang, comes out in 93, so that's sort of, like, the real preface to all of this, I think, for this kind of, this particular brand of East Coast hip-hop. But we'll get into that. Let's go, let's go back to Illmatic real quick, which is, a, like, a two-minute intro and then nine perfect songs if you ask me um tim let me ask you is there a highlight for you a song that just stands out more than the others or a line maybe like a, a one-liner from this that really stands out with you i'm throwing tim on the spot here so i'll babble for another couple seconds and give him time to reassess <laughs> that was my babbling but anyway um let me say about Nas real quick. Um, as we mentioned in the other episode, he's from Queensbridge, and this whole album is street poetry. I mean, that's what it's been labeled as for since this album came out now. Um, <clears throat> narratives of growing up in Queensbridge, of being in that project, of um, you know, life in, in the ghetto, as it were. And Nas is 19 or 20 when Illmatic drops and sounds way beyond those years. Like, it's absolutely wizened and awe-inspiring poetry. Uh, just the, the writing and the lyricism throughout Illmatic. Right, I don't have to tell you about this. This has been a big to-do ever since the album came out. But it's still... <clears throat> Tim and I were talking uh, you know, in the days leading up to recording this one about... Anytime we put on Illmatic, it's just stunning all over again. Just the smoothness of it, the flow of it, Nas's just insight and ability to string words together. It's if if ever you are doubting the argument that that lyrics, song lyrics in general, hip hop particularly, can be and is poetry, I'd direct you to Illmatic, which is some of the finest uh, poetry we've had since the 90s, I would say. Um, there are a lot of great poets out there, of course, but I don't know, I guess I'm kind of like passive-aggressively speaking to the people who wring their hands at Kendrick Lamar winning the, the he won the Nobel or the Pulitzer or whatever he won. I've forgotten myself, but... Pulitzer. Uh, huh? I'm pretty sure it was a Pulitzer. I don't think they give out Nobels to rappers yet. These are Swedes. No. <laughs> they should. Um... I was pretty sure Pulitzer, and then it was like, well, wait, what if I'm <laughs> wrong on that one? Um, I don't know. I, th I think 
we would do well to expand our horizons a bit in that way, but that's a different rant for a different time. Tim, you look more ready. That was a mean thing to ask me when, when you knew I had not pulled one up because I was not going to get it wrong. But there's, I, I just really, and I feel so basic for choosing this, but like, I don't know. I really enjoy like the way that the, the end of the second verse and life's a bitch kind of like, goes back into that chorus, which I just find, so, which I realize is not literally Nas, but like, which it just feels very, like a very good indicator of the rest of the album generally. Like if I were to choose like one, one particular um, thing to focus on here, like on the whole album, like this would be the idea. Um, time is elmatic, keep static, like wool fabric, pack a formatic to crack your whole cabbage, which I love because that makes me think of like the French Revolution too, a totally different time of mayhem and, and in, uh, urban, urban violence. Life's a bitch and then you die. That's why we get high, because you never know when you're going to go. And the reason I asked him to do that, one, to just highlight another great moment in all of Illmatic, but this thing is so full of reference points for hip-hop since 1994. It's absurd, really. Um, there's the vivid, wonderful <clears throat> street poetics, or poetics of Queensbridge, of the street, of where Nas is growing up, and you know, developing his chops and watching all of that violence. Um, there's also just the memorable one-liners, Tim got us into a couple there, actually. Life's a bitch, and then you die is a great one. Um, I never sleep, because sleep is the cousin of death. Life is parallel to hell. Um, that's why we try to maintain... Uh, I'm, out, I'm out for dead presidents to represent me, which is going to come back in one of our subtitle options um, <laughs> with a longer to-do for me about that. But anyway... Um, just all these incredible lines of, I think in all of those you see, like, life's a bitch and then you die, I never sleep because sleep is the cousin of death, I'm out for dead presidents. Like, there's this sense of death and violence and utter despair in all of them, and yet, like, you keep going for some reason, like, either because you have to or you just do, or, like, like it's all going to be meaningless and awful in the end anyway. So might as well make something out of it now. Like there's that sense throughout the album. So it's, it's very somber and depressing and just alarming in that way. And yet there's something vital about it. And I think a lot of that is just Nas's ability and flow itself. Um, and I don't have the best words for this yet, but one thing I've been thinking about is he sounds so urgent the whole time, but he never sounds hurried. Um, there's one guest spot on Life's a Bitch, and you can hear in that how other people hits these rhymes and these beats and these pockets differently than Nas does. Like, there's a sense of, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but like a power, like a forceful moving through of it with them, but Nas just sounds totally at ease, like everything's warping around him, like he lives in and through all of these songs. And you can kind of see that on the album cover, too, which is kind of this ghostly apparition uh, child's face. I think it's Nozzle's child or baby photo. Um, <clears throat> just superimposed over uh, an image of Queensbridge, but you can see, like, the buildings coming through the face. So it has this very eerie, like, ghost 
ghostly vibe to it. And that's sort of what's happening in the songs. Like they are these narratives of a place, um, of, of a home, of um, a community um, through and with Nas. Like he's superimposed on and in all of them, but like they're kind of coming through him in a way. And like that sort of relationship with a place is, I mean, just insanely hard to do in anything. Um, this is one of the few albums that manage this, manages that so well. Um, and I think even more well, because ultimately <clears throat> a lot of these songs are just kind of building off a boom bap thing, which is, you know, pretty simple, relatively speaking, but an absolutely amazing production team. Uh, we have producing credits for DJ Premier, Pete Rock, The Large Professor, Q-Tip, like all of these major New York rap presences came together at their I mean, there are several entries on documentaries and like oral histories of how this happened and not remember all the details, but it's just like this incredible collection of talent that somehow comes together and it's like, all right, let's build this thing for this kid because we see he has talent. So just amazing experience and talent across this thing. And it creates what are really just visceral and elemental beats throughout. And they, I don't want to say they're like easy or simple, but it's, it's not too cluttered. It's not a maximalist thing. And pretty much on every song, <clears throat> the groove is going to stick. The beat is going to stick. It's going to be the same thing throughout. Like, and when it's not, those become really kind of exciting and jarring moments. Um, like there's a moment on New York State of Mind where everything except the drum machine drops out. And it's, it's just a spot for Nas to go, the smooth criminal of beat breaks. And it's like this really exciting moment because that doesn't happen elsewhere. Uh, and it does create the sense that he's not really, like, I don't know, he's living in these, in a way, rather than, like, parts of the beat are accentuating words, or, like, you're finishing a line or a punchline, like, on a, uh, on a, uh, a beat shift or a scale shift or whatever. Um, so it's just, it's, to me, just this really interesting flow throughout that you don't, get a ton of um elsewhere and there's also this haunted feel to it uh, there's a lot of just kind of static hisses and silences between drum beats that become part of the song uh, if you new york state of mind which is the first full track on it uh, there's a horror that the like piano like plinking or, or bringing brings uh it feels kind of out of a horror movie and the bass and drum are lurching a bit like there's some drag behind them but they keep going um and you get that through most of the album there is this sort of terror or this horror to it and like you know the the monster lurches towards bethlehem but it's queen rich here so let's <laughs> we'll pull in yates and the french revolution to this um so yeah, I, and, and there's all these fun little flourishes too. The piano I mentioned on New York State of Mind, uh, it's a trumpet line on Life's a Bitch that's kind of a flourish and like sounds haunted in its own way. Uh, in halftime, I don't think they're literally sleigh bells, but there's kind of that sound at points. Like There's just the fun little musical flourishes, but all of them sound sad. All of them sound hollowed out. Uh, and really what's over that is the life that Nas is presenting. And like with all those one-liners and, and verses that we mentioned, it's that same dichotomy that's really driving this whole album. I mean, it's a big one 
I don't again I don't know why it's 23rd on this list but lots and lots and lots of ink have been spilled on this uh, is there anything else you want to say about it Tim or just to reiterate the thing about the beats seeming simple um because I know I know I had a similar like thought just sort of listening to it again with more of a not critical because I'm not that good at this but like a more mindful eye as opposed to just sort of getting swept up a little um I don't know. I just sort of had the thought that if everybody else could do this, they would. And I know that's a thought I have several times about music, but like if it were so easy to come up with a beat that like straightforward and, and that worked that well through the whole song, then everyone else's music would be that good. But we know that's not the case. There is something special happening that, that allows Nas to like make music that is simply, simply better (laughs) than like what everybody else is doing. And I think that's often a useful reaction that people can build on. If if you find yourself feeling like, oh, well, like, especially if you find yourself feeling like, oh, I could have done that. Well, you didn't. Why didn't you? Why didn't anyone else? Like, why is it that this is such a monumental uh, tome in hip hop history? Like, no one else did it. No one else has been able to recreate it, really. There's a reason for that. Um Stuff that sounds this simple is be not simple, but stuff that sounds this effortless really is because of an insane amount of effort that goes into it and an incredible amount of talent behind it. Um, which is not to say like you know there's always some stupid product you can see on an infomercial and it's like oh man I literally could have thought of that but like with artistic endeavor in particular like yeah but you didn't so why didn't you? <laughs> um, last thing I want to say showed Tim this right before the episode, but there's some stats in it too. So Shea Serrano, back when Grantland was still a thing, rip, uh, did a, a infographic for the 20-year anniversary of Illmatic's release. And it just, it's a really cool like matrix graphic, and it just shows all the different uh, samples that Illmatic has been all the different samples taken from Illmatic in some form. Um, so basically measuring the album's legacy in terms of music itself. I just want to drop a few numbers here because um, I think they are just kind of uh, illuminating on their own. So he tells, uh, and this was in 2014, mind you, so who knows what's happened since then. I think Kendrick has pulled from, from Nas at least. Um uh, Illmatic has been sampled at least 312 times in those 20 years, which if you take out the intro, which is a, again, sub two minute, just kind of, um, skit type thing, big in nineties hip hop albums, the skit. Um, it's amazing that Illmatic only has one of them. <laughs> um, and that too, like that sets you up on the subway. And to me, there's, like you can kind of feel that throughout the album too, like this dark, dingy subway, and like on New York State of Mind when those horns come in, it's like, oh, maybe you're out of tu- out of the tunnel for a second, or like some light comes shining through. Like, there's very much that dingy vibe to all of it. But anyway, if you take that out, you have nine songs left, which gives you an average of thirty-five point four samples per song on the album. And for some context, he goes into Biggie's Ready to Die, another, the other giant 1994 hip-hop album that's also been sampled a lot. And that one only comes in at 20.8 samples per song. 
and most of that is due to Juicy, which is has 108 samples alone. Um, and no other no other song on that album gets even half. Uh, and he goes to Jay-Z's Reasonable Doubt then, which we'll talk about in a little bit on this episode, a uh, 5.0 samples per song average. Illmatic's working an insane number there. And it, without even the juicy-sized hit of, like, this accounts for 108 of them, like, every song on this album is getting some substantial amount of samples. Um so critically, it's a it's an important album, and you can see just in in music itself, it keeps coming back. And sampling to me is just a really interesting uh, lens through which to view a certain sense of history. But again, you can just see the like the oh, what's the word I want here? The tangible impact that Illmatic has had. Tim, you had your hand up. I had a quippier series of things to say about Nas, so I wanted to make sure that you were you were good on your sample sample stats. I'm good. I want quip now. <laughs> okay, so I I remembered as we were talking that Nas was my favorite part of the 2016 motion picture pop star Never Stop Never Stopping, um, a movie that I was a little disappointed by because it had been hyped up for me a great deal by Twitter. Um, but he, he is the funniest part of that movie, which I think is hard if you're these, these Lonely Island guys and you are supposed to be. But anyway, there is a line that Nas has about, about a song. I forget what this song is, but like, essentially the, the band has a song about a Jeep and, and he says, I didn't really relate to that song because, you know, I had different things in my Jeep than he had in his Jeep. And his delivery on that is is exceptional. And there's like five other things he says that are like funnier than anything else because the delivery is so good. Put put Nas on TV. He, I think he's been in some other stuff, but he just has this like wonderfully straight flat delivery mm-hmm. on stuff that is not flat out of lack of talent, but just like the driest humor you can imagine. It's so good. Um, I got to see him live too a while back at a festival. And I like, I don't go to a ton of hip hop shows. Um, but like Nas was there and it's like, I'm absolutely not going to miss this, but I feel like at a lot, you get sort of these, I mean, it makes sense. Cause there's a lot of guest spots. There's a lot of like call and response time on songs, but you get clipped versions of songs a lot. Nas just straight ran through pretty much everything. It was so good. Um, but uh, yeah, put Nas on TV. That was the, <laughs> that was the big thing there. Um, so again, we're looking at East coast streets today. I think that's what I called it anyway. It's something like that. Um, That was it. Yeah, that was it. Okay, good. So we're going to look at two other major uh, albums in that moment in time, in that scene, in that place. I already mentioned one of them is Jay-Z's Reasonable Doubt, his 1996 debut. We'll get to that one second, but let's start with Mob Deep's The Infamous, their 1995 album. Um, And I will say, too, two artists that learned a lot from Nas and... Uh, were pretty chummy with him, it seemed, for a while, and then both of them ended up in ether and got absolutely destroyed. So, fun little through line on this episode to that that other one that was Blueprint. Uh, 
started. So Mob Deep, also from Queensbridge, and you know Nas helps them a bit. Like they they don't have the same full backing of like that producing team that Nas has, but they're you know they're coming up around the same time. They're learning a lot of the same tricks. I mean, we have a duo here, Prodigy and Havoc, who kind of inform and push one another. Uh, one of them. Their grandparents have a jazz background, so they're coming from more of that, um, you know, I want to say music, musical theory background, let's say. Like, they have that uh, kind of legacy in the family. Um, that's a Prodigy, by the way. And then Havoc. Having, I don't know, they, I mean, they both grow up there, but Havoc, I guess, having more of the Nas kind of upbringing, where it is that very street-centered mentality and influence. Um, so the two of those are kind of, influencing each other in a way and building up to the infamous which is a, another really great album and i think often overlooked a bit or overshadowed in this kind of mid-90s east coast moment i mean we hear about wu-tang we hear about Nas, we hear about biggie we hear about jay-z um tribe called quest who are in a bit of a different musical scene but like we know all these bands and we hear about them but i, I don't know i feel like mob deep gets kind of overlooked in that despite the infamous being nearly as good as any of them, if not as good. Um, is, this, is this a group you've had any familiarity with, Tim? Mostly for you. Go me. I don't remember what I did, but go me. <laughs> um, so yeah, and they do show up on the spin list. I think the infamous comes in at 205th or so. Um, so again, it's the type of album that like is known and ends up on things like this, but not very high. Like it's it's often a bridesmaid, shall we say, of a top hundred list. Um, and the, this is one of those albums with a lot of skits, as we were talking about skits on, or lack thereof, on Elmatic. But the you know our big opening song, the start of your ending, immediately we're thrown into a similarly dark and sparse um, kind of boom bap beat territory similar of Illmatic like it has you can feel kind of the uh, the DNA of Illmatic in this um, not to say that it's ripping that by any means but just that I mean right they're both coming out of Queensbridge they're both working together it's a lot of the same people in this community um, you know they're, they're developing their talents together so of course it's going to sound somewhat similar but again you get this <clears throat> kind of haunted elemental at times hollowed out feel to it and the real difference i think we see immediately is both both mob deep and nas are speaking to the kind of the terrors and the horrors of the violence of growing up like this and what it's like and whereas nas has that kind of poetic remove from it not in a bad way but just in like an observational like let me tell you like, let me tell you the stories of here, uh, and let me show you what it's like, and let me help you feel that. Mob Deep is doing that, but in a much more, let's say, first-person kind of way. Uh, we're getting a lot of darker tales of being in that violence very actively, of, of being in those projects, of being on those streets, of what it's like to be amidst all of that, that terror and fear and just a life where death is always right there. Um, 
and you know Nas says life's a bitch and then you die that's sort of the implication of the infamous in general like life's a bitch and then you die we're just trying not to die right now and there's a lot of references throughout to how young they are they're about the same age age as Nas when this comes out like a year or two younger even um and just how old living like this makes you um and how they're 19, 20, 21, you know, they're college age, pretty much. Most of us would be in college, they're about that age, and already they've seen so much and have, have lived through so much. So the start of your ending kind of gives us all of that. That like It feels familiar to Illmatic. Uh, it's dark, it's sparse, it's building on that kind of boom-bap tradition with this like horror flourish to it. Um, but we're even, it's even more depressing in a way or deflating even more violent even darker than what Nas is presenting us with um we get at the end of the start of your ending uh but it's the start of the ending my man's lending me his linden 42 shots depending on whether or not the clip is full to the top we bust in caps non-stop blazing in all the shows and even at the hose um right just this indiscriminate shooting and violence and that's going to run through the album and it's not an attempt to justify that and it's not something that i look at or want us to look at as like oh let's let's take them to task for this it's it's a real authentic thing like this is what their life was and we should be horrified for that for systematic reasons and not blamey i don't think um that's my short aside with how white people encounter hip-hop um (laughs) But right, this is there's a realness to this, uh, and it is just dipping you into that as as an audience. Uh, moving through the album a little bit, uh, we get to "Survival of the Fittest" with a sample. You know, I've been mentioning how <clears throat> Nas and Mob Deep kind of draw on horror. There is a sample on this that honestly sounds like the the blaring in Psycho to me. The like it's not totally that, but it's very close with this kind of martial beat to the whole thing, it's this very militaristic meets just utter terror uh, type thing going on. And we get the first in, the first instance of the line, the famous line, that's going to come back on Shook Ones Part 2. We'll get to that at the end. Um, Ain't no such thing as halfway crooks. Which I think you could read in a couple different senses. One is like, oh, what am I trying to say? This like glorification of, of crooks, of crime in that way. I never think that's the case. I think we need to hear that. <clears throat> I'm not the only one to say this. I'm not going to pretend that, you know, suburban white man here has a novel take on the infamous, but I think you need to hear that in terms of the horror that's happening throughout this album. And it's more suggesting that if you're a halfway crook, you're going to be dead. Like you have to live this life to actually make it through. <clears throat> so again, where Nas is giving us these kind of wizened, uh, observations, uh, these, these, um, knowing poetic moments of Queensbridge, Mob Deep are just there, um, and they're taking us right there with them. So they they eliminate that remove and make it even more horrifying, um, lyrically and, and musically. A lot of other great stuff in Survival of the Fittest. You know, Tim directed us to the French Revolution earlier. There's an explicit mention of, you know, Queensbridge being like Vietnam in Survival of the Fittest. Uh, 
you know, like guerrilla warfare, like Adrian Orange, like all of that terrible stuff. Um, that just if it doesn't kill you with a gunshot, it's going to kill you long range eventually with some kind of poison or infection or whatever. Um, <clears throat> you know, I'm not quoting lines directly here, but just cops better come with armor. Uh, you know, Nas doesn't often go into that territory. There's a lot about like, you know, <laughs> I'm young and black. I'm liable to get arrested anytime cops show up. And like, there's that clear, don't trust them. But here it's an active engagement, shooting engagement with cops. And that comes up a lot. Um, I'm, <clears throat> I'm falling and I can't look back. And, you know, we're I was saying earlier, maybe Nas gives us a little bit of like, I'm falling, but there's some way to get through this maybe. Uh, <clears throat> Mob Deep seems to cut that off almost immediately in Survival of the Fittest, which is one of the first three tracks on the album. I'm falling and I can't look back. I Like, I have no other choice. Um, and again, this connects with why there are no halfway crooks. You have to be fooled or you're dead. <clears throat> we get to an eye for an eye. You know, if, if songs before this feel reminiscent of Illmatic, to me, it always sounds like there's a bit of the world is yours in this. Um, I don't know that it's a literal sample of that song, but it has the the horns in particular. It sounds really close, like it could be kind of the slouching, uh, lurching version of that song. So again, like taking those building blocks that we've seen in Nas and just making them dirtier, making them grimier, making them tougher, more violent, more forceful. Um, and over that, there's a lot of just these kind of staticky click like a vinyl that's sort of clicking uh when you have it on the turntable like there's that static built into it or you have an old vinyl and it's really popping um and then these like plinky piano bits that again you know i mentioned these in nas too they give this horror film vibe to it um and you know we get a sense here that the world is an eye for an eye like that, that title is basically the thesis that Mob Deep has of the world. Um, and, and if you don't live it like that, you're going to end up dead again. So the album as a whole is about survival, really. Um, and it's it's not a glorification by any means of, of the drugs and the danger and the violence of New York City streets that um, you know all of these major mid-90s albums are building on. Um, and it's definitely not a glorification of just this outright and indiscriminate violence. Um, it's not trying to reason for any of that. It's just presenting it as this is what it's like and there's no other choice. Um, it's not like we, the oppressed minority in Queensbridge have many choices here. It's either this, um, or you die or you just wither away or you try and live in your house the whole time and that's not going to work either. Um, there's a great line in the album. There's a war going on outside no man is safe from. So even what I said there, even if you try and stay inside, as soon as you go out, there's a war going on, and it's going to come at your home at some point. And no one's safe. I, I think that's the real difference and the real interjection point of um, of the infamous, that you know, Nas is showing us the war in a certain way, but the infamous, it's inescapable. Uh, I think that's really the, the addition here. Um, on the song Q.U. Hectic, uh, we get another great line. Real like an innocent child that turned killer. And you know, I mentioned how much age comes up earlier. I think that's an important line uh, to hear in 
in light of that. And another one of inevitability that the innocent child doesn't have a choice, that that can't exist in this space, that you have to turn killer to actually survive. Um, and then we get to Shook Ones Part 2, which is the, the major song from this album, the one that will live on past recognition of the album as a whole, uh, because it's a great song. No one should try and figure out what the best verse in hip-hop is. That's a, a losing game. But uh, the first verse from Prodigy is probably one that would get some mention uh, if you did ask people in the know to, like, what is the best one ever? And this is a song that really... It's a Herbie Hancock sample, which is always endlessly amusing to me. But it sounds like it's straight up out of, like, some John Carpenter movie. Um, or, or, like, a Hitchcock thing, like... It's a, it's just such a memorable melody and sample in line. And the, I think the, the best lyric in here is, I'm only 19, this is said by Prodigy in that first verse, I'm only 19, but my mind is old. And I think even for me, like I, you know, I'm mentioning all this stuff, and it's hard to fathom being 19, me at 19 going through everything that shows up on the infamous all the violence, all the, all the chaos, all the, you know, the, the, the cop presence, the poverty, all of that, actually growing up in this space, being 19, and you essentially are old at that point, because you've managed not to die yet, and you have some wisdom at that point that maybe you can share with younger people, uh, and that's what Nas is doing actively, and it seems like Mob Deep saying, yeah, you can do it, but it's not really going to change anything. So it's ultimately building on the same blocks, I think, but an even more depressing vision. Um, not a realer vision, um, but one that just really takes us to the ground level and shows us in all the despair what it's like being on those streets that all of this hip-hop music is talking about. Anything you want to you wanna say about The Infamous or Mob Deep? It's interesting to have a, an album that and again, this is not what I'm like super familiar with, but like it's interesting to have an album that thematically and and just in terms of location is just so similar, like the same, the same neighborhood and the same borough and the same city is like at that point you were getting, you were getting like mirror versions of of an experience, and it's interesting to see how in one person's hands it's like a little, I don't know, borderline nihilistic. Um, sort of an eat, drink, and be merry thing sometimes, and then in this case it's like full-on militant. Um, I don't know, just interesting to see where where different people go with the same set of circumstances, basically, how those things, you know, go differently depending on the kind of people you have in front of you. Yeah, I think militaristic is a good word, and I think it definitely is nihilist. There is no sense of merry on this album. Um, one of the lighter tracks is a whole thing about alcoholism and the dangers of that. Like, that's one of the reprieves from all of those street violence. So think about that for a moment. Um, it's a sinister album. And that comes through in the music, that comes through in the lyrics, that comes through in, in the stories, and just the visions that it's giving us as a whole. And, you know, that's true to the place that it comes from. Uh, it, it's that underbelly that we, the privileged, didn't want to see, still don't want to see. Um, but Mob Deep doesn't give us a choice if we listen to the infamous. So with that said, moving on to Jay-Z. 
his 1996 debut, Reasonable Doubt, also shows up on the spin list at 108th, actually. So it was near, near the cutoff, and I believe is the second, uh, how do I put this so it's understandable? So of all the albums outside of the top 100 on the spin list, so 101 to 300, I'm using several of them because there's a lot of great stuff there, and... Right, I couldn't go not using any of them. That seemed insane. Uh, I think it's the second highest of those that I'm going to pull into one of these episodes. So there's one from 101 to 107 that I'm using later on. But anyway, the, I, I have a hard time getting... I think I mentioned this in the other Jay-Z episode. Um, did you realize what the other one is? Is that what that is? <laughs> um, it's totally different from reasonable doubt. But, um, I have a hard time getting like a critical grasp on this album. Um, and I think part of that is I've never really been sure or comfortable with what the actual assessment of it is. I think there are some people who say it's his best or like very close to the blueprint uh, and others who have it further down on that list like i've never had a good grasp on what people actually think about this one or or what its legacy is um it's fairly clear that to jay-z it's a super important one and like probably the most important one to him uh it's the first one it's his baby it's it's after years of life and effort and like his real announcement of self um and he's 26 when this one comes out which is practically ancient compared to 19 for the other ones. Um, so, right, I'm older right now than Jay-Z when he released Reasonable Doubt, and yet he feels, it, it feels like to make it to 26 in, in New York City in the, mid in the mid-90s as a black man is just a stunning achievement, especially as one who has lived a life like Jay-Z, because this is coming on the back of his well-documented in his own music, uh, drug dealing and how rich that made him, how he's basically rich at this point already. Like he already is set for life pretty much. Um, which always risks making the album seem like just a vanity project. And it's not that I don't want to, I'm not going to try. I don't think that's the case at all, but it does have like the different sort of mentality to it in that way. It's, it's not Nas or prodigy or havoc. Like, we're very young and this is what we know and we're gonna we're gonna make music about it because we don't know what else to do there is nothing else to do comparably jay-z has lived an entire other life already one that nas and, and mob deep are coming up in right now but he's already lived that life and now it's time for something new and it's like well what do you do when you hit 26 has no one expected us to get here and, and that's something I always think of when I listen to this one. And that's why I think that other episode is connected to this in some way. Like, what does it mean to grow old when no one expected us to in, in the hip-hop scene? Like, 26 is old here. And the, the album opens with the skit, of course. They all do. And this one... It, it, it's interesting to think about in relation to Illmatic, which opens with the sounds of the subway. So immediately we're in a place... Um, and in its own way, the lifeblood of, of a neighborhood, of a city, um, and that's not necessarily a positive thing. We can, it doesn't take long to Google all the problems with, um, you know, public transit and, and subways and how those are 
weaponized against impoverished and oppressed communities. Um, but reasonable doubt opens with a heartbeat. And I think that's important as well. It is sort of this lifeblood of Jay-Z, um, lifeblood of the streets, becomes music, becomes this image, becomes this persona of Jay-Z himself, of Jay-Z as a rapper, as Jay-Z, as this music figure and mogul and uh, a new point in his life. Again, he was already rich from all of his drug running. He makes that clear on this album and pretty much every album since then. And a lot of the stories on here are coming from that. And they're the, these kind of rags to riches narratives. Um, but I think what Reasonable Doubt does better than, than many of his other albums really is looks at the kind of the sadness of that. That like, yeah, I made it, but what does that mean? Or that it just brings a whole new set of problems or... You know that that money, that wealth and fame, kind of hollow you out in a different way. Uh, and reasonable doubt refuses, like picking a side on that, so to speak, which I think is smart because either way you're picking kind of a, a bad option. Um, <laughs> that was said eloquently. Either way, you're picking something that kind of hollows you out and destroys you in some way. Um, but we get these, kind of these moves throughout the album of like, yeah, I made it. It's great. I can do this now. Like, look at this great life that I have. And also like, but that's empty in its own way. Maybe I'm not going to die tomorrow, but what do I, what do I actually have here? Uh, the album kicks off then with uh, Can't Knock the Hustle. And I think this is one of those ones where it's like, yeah, look how great it is to be me, to have all this wealth and fame. And it features a line along the lines of, you're sad, you aren't me. So already Jay-Z is striking this tone of, I'm Jay-Z, I'm the greatest, I have all this, you don't, haha. Which is something that he'll pick up a lot more uh, throughout his albums. Um, and Politics as Usual, the next song, which is a great one. Um, there's just such a smooth flow to that one uh but he's rapping about you know his love of and having you know expensive shoes and clothes trips to vegas for gambling all the jewelries um <laughs> you know the pains of taxes especially when you have money if only um and then tellingly he compares himself to don corleone and i think that's informative don corleone has this figure who similarly rags to riches um who makes it in New York City and becomes this massive godfather figure. And that's what Jay-Z wants. Um, you know, but we also see in The Godfather that that comes with its own host of troubles. And, you know, you could want one set over the other, and it's hard to begrudge you either way, but like that, I think, is where Jay-Z's locating himself on Reasonable Doubt. What really sets this album apart, besides the perspective in that way, is early on, the first half or so of the album, it does feel of a piece with Illmatic and with the infamous. Uh, we're getting sort of similar uh, musical worlds here. But there's a little bit of difference there. The bass lines are rolling a little bit more. They're extended a bit. There's a bit more of a swagger to it. Uh, Jay has his kind of patented chuckles around, and there's not the same like sinister edge or growling to it that 
that Nas or Havoc or Prodigy can bring. Like it's not as hard or, or jagged in that way. Um, there's just sort of there's more smoothness to it throughout, uh, and stuff's a bit funkier. And there's more of an R and B influence here. Mary J. Blige is showing up on an early song. It, it's clear that Jay Z early on is more uh, in step with kind of pop and R and B. Uh, movements in the mid nineties that like, he's a bit more on that side, but it still feels familiar. But as the album goes on, that kind of goes away. It becomes a lot funkier. Um, it becomes a lot more R and B influenced. Um, it becomes a lot closer to kind of the party rap that Jay Z is going to help really set in the two thousands in particular. And that P. Diddy is going to be doing in, in the 90s after Biggie dies. Like, it goes to a lot. It's more spirited, it's more upbeat, and maybe the tales are just as dark. Uh, but there's a there's a happier sheen to all of it. Um, it's a lot funkier, it's a lot more danceable, it's a lot less dark and haunted and confronting. And musically, you can hear that happen across the album, which I think is is really interesting. And also, you know, if we're talking about East Coast Streets in the mid-90s, that's the move that's going to happen. Jay-Z kind of presages this. Again, after Biggie dies, Biggie shows up in a song here. It's called Brooklyn's Finest, and it's just the two of them basically going, just letting loose. Um, it's great to hear the two of them together. And I think Biggie wins in so much as anyone is looking for who wins in that in terms of best MC, but um, it, 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 more importantly, it is the two of them talking about, well, we made it. What do we do now? What does this mean? Uh, and where do we go from here? And, you know, there is that sense that wealth is good. Uh, riches are, and material is cool. Like, it's great to have all this, but old habits die hard. I think that comes up, especially in Biggie's verses. Um, that we get these visions of just being rich and well and well off and, and ostensibly happy in that way. But then it turns back to, you know, drug running and, and gang banging and shooting and like this violence always makes its way back. Um, Dead Presidents 2 is the, yes, uh, <laughs> reference to Nas and it's just a song that builds off of that hook. And there's one line. I don't know why I like this one, but he's like, I'm, he says at one point, I'm still spending money. I earned an 88. Um, and I think like, it's, it's a funny kind of one-off, but I think even in that you see, he has lived this life already. He has this wealth from, uh, you know, from growing up in that he, he has an experience that Nas and Mob Deep can't give us because he's practically ancient at this point and somehow made it through. Like, this is the success story really. Um, and there's more of a dreamy kind of jazzier vibe to that song. And I think that's really a moment in the album where it does make this turn to, uh, it's going to be a bit more upbeat. It's going to be a bit looser, a bit smoother, a bit funkier, a bit, there's more swagger to it in general. Um, <clears throat> but then we get a song of, and you know, when I pronounce this, it, so it's, it's devils. So it's spelled like devils, but there's an apostrophe between the D and the E. So if we're taking that, like, crooked french wise that would be of evils <laughs> um so do what you will with that title um but that's really the moment of if before that we're getting a lot of these visions of 
right? This is success in this life, in this life that Illmatic and that the infamous are setting up. This is what it means to be successful and to actually make it through that. And it's hard, but it's possible, and I did it. Uh, this song is really demonstrating how money and fame corrupt, uh, how everyone is trying to win, and when that's the case, everybody will be violent towards one another, that there is no real communal or, or systematic building in that way. It's just the rat race, pretty much. And in this case, when you're in Brooklyn, when you're in Queensbridge, that often means death and murder, and winning comes at the expense of other life. And he does. He says at one point later on, I'm not trying to survive, I'm trying to live. And I pray, I, I don't pray to God, I pray to Gaudi. And again, another kind of funny one-off thing, it's like, really? Uh, I mean, there's stuff in the Bible about that, about why that's bad if you want to follow the Bible. <laughs> um, and it is... Right? It's like, to, to become a success, the materialism has to take over, and that's its own false god. And that will lead you to just a different type of ruin. And I ain't trying to survive, I'm trying to live. All Mob Deep knows is survival. Uh, they don't have the luxury of knowing what it is to live. And <clears throat> Jay-Z is kind of on the other end of that now, and sees the, the further pitfalls that it lives, that that brings really. So in all three of these albums, I think we see really just the depression and the nihilism and the inevitability of this mid nineties being black in, in America, but in New York city in particular. Um, and we get kind of different moments in that, uh, different perspectives on that, but all of it seems to end in a similar you know, that question of what does it mean to live and not just survive? How do we get there? And we don't really get an answer, but we get kind of different progressions of that. And I think through that, 94, 95, 96, we're seeing kind of where hip-hop music, East Coast hip-hop music in particular, is moving to. Um, from the dark, the sinister, the haunted, to more of this pop and R&B kind of party danceable type hip-hop where maybe the lyrics can be just as profound and and uh, horrific but the music itself is taking a turn as we go through the 90s um, after this moment of just unconscionable uh, all of it's unconscionable after this moment of widely publicized violence where Biggie and Tupac die um, so we see that musical movement there and I think Lyrically, in terms of perspective, we see kind of what it means to grow up in that scene um, and questions of survival and, and living throughout the whole thing. So anything on Jay-Z or Reasonable Doubt, Tim? I guess I kind of started my spiel there, but anything you want to say or what more do you need to hear? I was going to let you go there because it, it was it was transitioning nicely. Um, no, it's interesting to, to also hear you know, both sides of it, right? Like, aside from the fact that there's a certain level of circularity on this podcast in which a Nas album was up to replace a Jay-Z album, and now we have the opposite, you know, as a, as a potential outcome. Um, it, it is interesting to hear about people who approach the same thing very differently, um, the same, like, scenarios, to, and to approach them with a different mindset. And then to see somebody who is not all that far away, all things considered, um, only... Only, you know, how much time does it take to 
to drive from Queens to Brooklyn anyway. Um, don't answer that if you're from New York. I don't actually care. I just want to get that out of here. I don't care what the New Yorkers tell me about that. Oh, okay, but, but, but do you mean driving in, like, just imagine the streets were empty or with New York traffic? Oh, it's just I'm like... Being the ty- I'm being the type of person Tim was just shooing off. <laughs> well, just, like, in terms of distance. Like, it's not that. If we were to, like, pull up Google Maps, it would not be such a distance. No, the boroughs are not that far away. Like, it's... I think Staten Island's the furthest one away, and that just means, like, an extra bridge or something. <laughs> I mean, it's it's one city on purpose, but, like... Not so, not so far off from from Queens. You have this person who has the advantage of what five to seven years, and has the advantage of working his way up to being what I saw. Some reviewer, I need to figure out who it is. Maybe it was Robert Crisco, who was like the the work of a quote minor crack baron, and maybe maybe that wasn't him. If that was him, then I'm I'm glad I got that right. But like you know, a little time, a little distance makes makes a lot of a lot of change. Um, and I wonder, I wonder which one I'll choose. Basically, I kind of have an inkling, but I am I am in a position where I could probably be swayed one way or the other by by what happens in this spiel. So I'm gonna let you take over again once you once you figure out if I'm right that that was him or somebody else. It was Crisco, so good job. <laughs> um, I, I didn't know he made that assessment. I love that one. <laughs> um, and I also was Googling in the middle of that the distance between, I guess, Brooklyn Center and Queens Center. It's about 10 and a half miles, which if you were to drive that at this time of day would be 31 minutes. That's not <laughs> so, bad. No, no, that's not bad at all. That's close. Um, they're basically next door to each other. Um, but anyway, uh, spiel time. Again, I, I sort of started doing it there, but I think Tim is right and only says that there's not much distance in, in age, in location, in, uh, you know, musically what moment they're coming up in. There's not a lot of distance in any any way between all of these acts. So it's kind of amazing to see the progressions made from 94 to 96 in that way. And not progressions in like an evolutionary sense, but just changes, rather. So our entry today on the spin list number 23 is Nas's Illmatic, his 1994 debut, absolute masterpiece of an album. And rightfully, what that what's always mentioned first when someone's talking about Illmatic is Nas's poetry. Is his lyricism is his his flow is just his construction of stories and worlds that speak to Queensbridge, this place in which he has grown up and is the only world he knows at this point, and how terrifying it is to live there, really. But Nas is able to do this with this wizened sort of observational perspective that brings reality and authenticity and pathos to this world that many listeners are not going to know about unless they live there. With that, it's a massively important album to what the East Coast sound is going to be in the mid-90s, um, at the height of this East Coast-West Coast thing. So the darkness to this, the the ghastliness, the sinister aspects of it, um, all of that's present in Nas. And we get that coming through the two replacement albums that I've uh, offered up for Tim to choose between. 
<laughs> first in Mob Deep's 1995 album, The Infamous, which I think almost immediately we can see, okay, this is uh, in the same, in a similar, it's on the same street, if not in the same lane as Nas, as Omatic, and that makes sense, Mob Deep being from Greensburg as well. Uh, you know, a lot of the same talent is, like, right, these, these two acts are sharing ideas with each other, they're working together, and there's a lot of the same talent around them, too. So they're coming up at the same time, in the same place. And what The Infamous does is, is you know, we feel that similarity, but then it just goes even further to a point of it's not defending or even really observing the horror, but it just lives in it. And it's the only thing that Mob Deep knows. And to survive, right, there's no time to be a halfway crook. I'm always 19 and my mind is old. It's, it's less observational in a way and more we are two <clears throat> young kids uh, and two rappers who have, two musicians who have lived this, who have been in it, and it just, it drags you down into that with you. Um, so it's more milita militaristic in that way. It's even more uh, terrifying, really. And the second option is, right, right, and I would add to that in the infamous, we kind of hear what is leading to all of this grand publicized violence. Um, you know, when the world is shocked that Biggie dies, well, if we had listened a little closer, we wouldn't have been because it was all right here. Uh, it, the world was there for us to, to listen to. And then in 1996, we get Jay-Z's debut, Reasonable Doubt. 26 at the time of release, so comparatively old, uh, and has lived kind of an entire other life. Um, as Robert Crisco, Crisco tells us, he was a minor crack baron. And the reference to Don Corleone on politics as usual, I think, is telling. Jay-Z is seeing himself as that kind of beleaguered godfather figure. Yeah, I have success, but what other troubles does it bring? Um, and how do money and fame corrupt? And we get that tension throughout the album of, I am the success story of this vision that we've seen in Nas and Mob Deep. And what really have I gotten? And do do the jewels, do the clothes, do the riches, do the the you know extravagances really fill the the holes that were there. And ultimately, reasonable doubt doesn't really answer that. I think wisely because it's not something that has an answer that is immediate. Um, so we get on the one hand that sort of this is the vision of success as a setup. Um, with these, you know, particularly East Coast stories and hip hop visions, and also musically, we're seeing the move to what's going to happen '97 and onward, to a more upbeat, to a more R&B influenced, to a more, uh, to a poppier kind of hip hop that's going to come out of New York City in particular. And yeah, I think that's the spiel, Tim. You feeling ready? You need more from me? I'm going to figure this out as I go. So basically, the, the spiel introduced a new idea for this, which I, which I enjoyed, um, which is this idea of the future being told in them as well, and I find that compelling. I am also... I have two competing things that are happening, which, which I uh, think cancel out. So I have on one hand not wanting to replace Nas with a Jay-Z album just after, you know, the other thing that happened back there. And that's that's also on my mind. But the other thing is that 
I don't necessarily want to pick something that's like reinforcing the original albums so tightly that it feels like there's not a lot of air between them. And, and, and there is air, there is space between them. I think you did a good job of explaining that, but like they are very much of a piece, it sounds like. And so I'm a little torn and those two are just going to cancel out. And I'm going to ignore both of those. And I think when, when I do all the math, I do kind of like the way, uh, that the infamous goes about it. I'm just I'm just a little more interested in what it's like to be a a teenager essentially, like cuz when you're 19, it says it in the name, like you may be an adult, but that's still kind of a teenager. Um when you're 19 or 20 and everything is just kind of um kind of overblown anyway in the way that teenagers are so frequently kind of kind of jumpier and more dramatic and faced with a situation which is profoundly dramatic and which is um, profoundly fear-inducing and and frightening and that kind of thing. How how does that all sort of tie up together to give it a count of a place? Which I think, as much as Reasonable Doubt is definitely talking about a place, it, it just seems like there's something a little bit more localized in particular about the infamous that reasonable doubt could have been somewhere else. Like, I'm not saying like the, the album is set up in such a way you're like, Oh yes. And this could have happened in Omaha, but like, you know, like it, it doesn't necessarily speak to me as being a purely New York thing, the way that that something about the infamous seems more pure in its New Yorkishness. No, that makes sense to me. I will say that since you picked Omaha off the dome, I'm now humming Counting Crows to myself, who don't fit in this episode at all. Not at all. Anyway, um, no, I see what you're saying there. I think that makes sense. That right in Reasonable Doubt, it is sort of this is what it means to escape, and the New York keeps coming back in a particular way, or like you can't fully dispel of it. But there is. Right, there's a degree to which Jay-Z has succeeded enough that he's not bound to a project anymore um, in a way that Mob Deep in the time, you know, you know, when the infamous releases, that's where they are. They, I mean, they're not minor crack barons. Where else are they going to go? Um, and yeah, I, I think you're right in what you said there in that I, I, as you were talking, I, I like that choice too because since I've called this East Coast Streets, um, Jay-Z is a particular case, but what Mob Deep's giving us, I didn't even think about this beforehand, I think, is a clearer vision of what it's like for so many kids, for so many people in those settings. And, you know, Jay-Z's able to give us great stories. I don't want to take that away from him, but just when you were emphasizing age again there, I kind of thought of that, that like, this is what it's like for so many people in that moment, in that place. Um, and just the terror of that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I didn't have a leading candidate here in mind, but I'm, <laughs> there would have been a certain funny aspect of the symmetry of Nas 
replaces Jay-Z, Jay-Z replaces Nas, but um, I'm happy to see Mob Deep go through. I think The Infamous is a really good album, um, and it's nice to see it get some credit here in, in the sort of broad East Coast scene. Anything else you want to say about these, about Nas? Nope, I'm already out of my depth already, and I am going to retreat as as best I can. Right on. So, today we talked about Illmatic, number 23 on the spin list, and in the theme of East Coast Streets, so thinking about Illmatic with two other particularly important East Coast hip-hop albums in this mid-90s moment, where East Coast hip-hop means something a lot bigger and a lot grander. And the albums I, I offered up to Tim were Mob Deep's 1995 album The Infamous and Jay-Z's debut in 1996, Reasonable Doubt. And Tim has chosen Mob Deep and The Infamous and May Shook One's Part 2 Live On Forever. Thank you all for listening. If you want to see more about Tim and I, uh, more about our blogs, what we write elsewhere, if you want to check out what I'm up to on Spotify or what Tim is doing on Letterboxd. And if you want to catch up on past episodes of the podcast, we have a, we have a decent pool of them now, I think. Uh, please go to our website, subtitlespodcast.com. Again, you can check out all you'd want to know about us, about our other work, about what we're listening to or watching, and all the past episodes of this. And please stay tuned for part two of this episode, where Tim will be talking... Uh, sort of in a similar vein, I think, food for the machine. And that will be prompted by modern times.